Who better to talk to about the economy, inflation, shrinkflation, all the flations than Alan Tonelson? He is a trade expert, the founder of Reality Check, a blog covering economics, national security, technology, and more. He's also been a former advisor on trade issues to Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Always a pleasure, Frank. And by the way, I was just scraping the bottom of my ice cream container, which was a little lighter than usual. (laughs) I can can imagine. I can imagine. Alan, uh, one of your blog posts uh, this week really caught my attention, especially given our last conversation. Our last conversation, we touched a bit about tariffs in general and the tariffs related to China specifically. And uh, that is something, by the way, you don't hear any much about anywhere these days, the whole tariff question. You read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I don't see much people paying attention to the, uh, the economic uh, implications or the hopes and fears that we heard so much about tariffs during the Trump administration. But you're, you wrote this blog post yesterday all about this, uh, these r- remarks made by the White House, the Deputy White House National Security Advisor, Dalip Singh, when she made some remarks about ta- when um, when when Dalip Singh made some remarks about tariffs last Thursday. What exactly did Dalip Singh say? He made the point that, gee whiz, you know, we have all of this inflation and we might be able to cut back meaningfully on that inflation to cool prices off meaningfully if we would just reduce all if we would just reduce at least some of those sky high tariffs that former president trump put on hundreds of billions of dollars worth uh worth of exports that the chinese um have been hoping to sell into this country and even more important the very following day, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who was probably President Biden's chief economic advisor, made this very same point. She said, you know, we could do something about inflation if we could cut or if we could reduce and even eliminate if we could eliminate a number of those tariffs on Chinese goods. And the problem with that argument is that the tariffs on Chinese goods have contributed practically bupkis to inflation. But now explain this to folks. They may understand what a tariff is, that uh, it's a, essentially a tax on a good right. that's imported to the United States. And folks might think, well, it sounds logical. If we're putting a tax on a good that's imported from another country, that means it costs American consumers more to buy it. Why then would what Singh and Yellen said not be true? Why wouldn't it be contributory to inflation? Well, first of all, uh, really important to remember that from the time that Trump began putting tariffs on Chinese products, which was the middle of 2018, practically until the uh, coronavirus hit this country big time, um, there was almost no tariff effect on the prices that consumers paid for Chinese products. And why was that? Because companies were very reluctant to pass those costs on. The 
parties that actually pay the higher price for the Chinese goods are not necessarily consumers. They're the companies that buy the products from China. It's then up to those companies to decide how much of that increased cost are we going to pass on to American consumers. And for the most part, U.S. businesses decided that they just couldn't take the chance on trying to... Excuse me, on trying to pass those costs on, largely because I think they were afraid that American consumers were still shell-shocked from the 2008 financial crisis and had turned very cautious. And it seems, by and large, they were right. Now, lately, they've been much more successful and much more enthusiastic about passing higher costs on higher energy costs and all of the higher costs that businesses have experienced due to the various snags in global supply chains that we've seen precisely because of the stop-start nature of the American economy that's been caused largely by, by these waves of coronavirus that keep arriving and that keep arriving and and then receding but when it comes to the products that mr singh and that secretary yellen were talking about they make almost no contribution whatever to u.s inflation rates because relative to the size of the whole u.s economy they're so infinitesimally tiny what do you think has been the driver of inflation over the past year? Is it the supply chain shortage? Is it energy? Is it both? It's both, and it's also the fact, um, and and it's 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 increasingly obvious that we sh- that Congress should not have passed President Biden's American Rescue Plan in the early part of 2021, because by that time, even though this legislation was billed as emergency coronavirus relief, it was clear that economically speaking, the, the virus emergency was over. The U.S. economy was already recovering very strongly. Consumers had lots of money in their pockets and in their savings accounts due to the previous virus relief bills that were passed the previous year. And and the result of this American rescue plan being passed was that the economy overheated. Consumers received even more money and they decided to spend it. And they decided to spend so much that businesses simply couldn't keep up with the with these new orders. And when I say businesses, I, I mean, of course, all of the transportation networks that goods flow through to get to this country and to be distributed around this country. Now, if people just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with Alan Tonelson. You could uh, just check out his blog, Reality Check. Just Google Reality Check. It, it comes uh, right up. In terms of um, what we can do at this point about about inflation, what would you suggest? The... the U.S. economy and President Biden and the Federal Reserve, which has the main responsibility in the U.S. government for keeping inflation in check, they are on the horns of a major dilemma because, as practically everybody knows, 
inflation, whether you're talking about retail inflation, that is the the price that we pay for the actual goods that we consumers see on store shelves or wholesale inflation, the price that that businesses pay one another for the parts and components that they trade back and forth, those inflation rates are at multi-decade highs. We're talking 40-year highs. And yet, they're so high that that the only way, it seems to me anyway, that the Federal Reserve can bring those inflation rates down is by raising interest rates so high, that is, making the cost of credit for businesses and consumers so high that it could tip the economy into recession. Um, And that's the problem that the Fed faces. And the Fed has raised rates and is going to raise rates more. So money, the price of money is going to get more expensive. But when you've got 8% consumer inflation and interest rates still only at roughly at roughly 1% and maybe they'll go up as a result of the next fed meeting to 1.5%. No one thinks that's going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well it's going to be interesting. So much of the of our economy right now seems tied towards China. Now you alluded to the covid problems that we faced in this country when there's an uptick it has an economic ramification. In China, we are seeing severe COVID lockdowns, which is now leading to a a Shanghai shutdown. And there's even talk that this might extend to Beijing. Now, if this happens, this would be, and this continues, this would be disastrous for the Chinese economy. And because of America's interconnectedness with the Chinese economy, I can't imagine it would be very good for the American economy. Is it too late at this point to decouple in a meaningful way the American economy from the Chinese economy? It's not too late. And in fact, substantial decoupling has already taken place, including on the trade front. And the main evidence for that is if you look at the value of two-way trade between the U.S. and China, that is total trade, as a percentage of the U.S. economy, it's been, go- excuse me, it's been going down steadily since about 2018, not so coincidentally when former President Trump began imposing tariffs on Mm -hmm. Chinese products. Um, And if the U.S. stays the course, that's going to continue, largely because China has proven to be such an unreliable business partner lately for all foreign-owned companies that that are operating in China, that they're going to be increasingly tempted to move their operations, especially their factories, to other low-cost countries. Some of this manufacturing has come back to the United States, more certainly will, 
much more has gone to other low-cost countries, for example, Vietnam and in this hemisphere, Mexico. I, I, I have full confidence that, that this so-called zero-COVID policy that the Chinese have been pursuing is going to accelerate that flight of factories outside China and reduce China's importance to the U.S. economy even further, which is all to the good, because we should want to have as little to do with this with an economy that's, after all, run by a hostile dictatorship as we possibly can. And it's not going to be easy because, as you pointed out, we still import hundreds of billions of goods uh, – I'm sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods from China, from China each year. But relatively speaking, the importance of these Chinese imports has been decreasing. Uh, we're talking with Alan Tonelson. Alan, let me ask you about the situation going on in Eastern Europe right now. Yesterday, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin um, went to Ukraine and they gave some remarks after their three-hour meeting with President Zelensky uh, General Austin said afterwards, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. And then uh, went further in saying that uh, he wants a serious he doesn't just want Russia out of Ukraine. He wants a, a serious degradation of the Russian military. Is this a wise policy for America to pursue? And is it wise for us to be advertising this to the world right now. I'm extremely worried about this latest turn in U.S. policy. And I say latest turn because U.S. policy, at least on the rhetorical level, has been full of, of, of almost nothing but twists and turns ever since the Russians invaded. Um, and, and that kind of inconsistency and apparent confusion can possibly serve U.S. interests. But more specifically, the longer the war in Ukraine lasts, and this is not to take anything away from the incredible effectiveness and courage of the Ukrainian people and their armed forces, but it is a tragic irony of current geopolitics that the longer this conflict lasts, the likelier it is to spill over Ukraine's borders into countries that belong to NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, countries that the United States is bound by treaty to, de to defend. And therefore, if the conflict spills over, it raises the prospects of U.S. troops who are already in those countries and, in fact, ha have, been getting, have been getting deployed there in growing numbers. It raises the prospect of U.S. forces fighting Russian forces. Mm. And that, in turn, could well escalate to the all-out nuclear war level, which would be catastrophic for the entire planet, including Ukraine, by the way. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, coming back to this continent, one of the issues that has gotten a lot of attention is the crisis at the border. I think by any objective measure, things are going to get much worse in terms of the border situation once uh, Title 42 is no longer in place. Evidently, at least one judge has restrained the Biden administration in their attempt to uh, roll back Title 42. Give me your take on the border situation in general, Alan, and what the 
the repeal of Title 42 would mean for the situation at the border? The border situation uh, richly deserves the title Biden border crisis because former President Trump um, was making very significant progress in getting in, in getting illegal immigration under control. He took some very tough steps including Title 42, um, including the remain in Mexico policy, which really cut down on uh, on the numbers of asylum seekers from all over the world who had been successfully entering this country under largely false pretexts. They were claiming that they had reasonable fears of persecution, of uh, uh, political violence. They were really seeking economic opportunity. And President Trump closed that loophole quite effectively. Um, On his first day in office, President Biden announced to the entire world that though, that every loophole closed by President Trump was going to be reopened. Maybe not right away, but that was clearly his, his intent. And as a result, the numbers of, of illegal immigrants um, who have been encountered at the U.S. border by, by the U.S. Border Patrol has reached record levels, or at least certainly multi-decade levels. And, the, and if Title 42 gets rescinded, if the United States decides that there's no more public health emergency that, that, that could justify preventing immigrants from coming into this country on those grounds, you're going to see caravans multiply tremendously in size and also number. And P.S., as excuse me, as we've seen for the last roughly year and a half, they're not only going to be coming in from Mexico and Central America or even the rest of the Western Hemisphere. They're going to be coming from the Middle East, and we're going to see U.S. national security threatened because it's 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 almost impossible to imagine that 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 Border Patrol right now is going to be able to figure out who's a terrorists and who's not one of the we, we saw a president of france uh, emmanuel macron reelected on sunday and a lot of biden advisors seem to publicly take solace in macron's reelection. i believe it was ron Klain who tweeted something to the effect of oh look uh, a president getting elect a, a president with a 36 percent approval rating getting reelected. The implication was that if Macron could do it, Biden can do it. Obviously, the electoral systems in France and the United States are very different. But mm. do you think that the um, the Macron victory in France would be a could be could portend a Biden victory in two years? I see absolutely no connection whatever, because I really don't think there are too many American voters who have been taking their their political uh, cues from French voters or from any foreign voters. And, and, And I don't believe that's ever happened throughout American history. Now, having said that, I I have no doubt that today's Republican Party um, has um, has tremendous 
potential to screw up massively um, what should be a, a what what <laughs> what should be a major victory in this year's off-year elections and even in 2024's presidential elections. The Republican Party um, is is experiencing some very serious splits. Prime and, and and what's weird is the main splits seem to be between the leaders that Republican voters keep sending to Congress and the Republican voters themselves. Yeah, it's funny. I saw an article yesterday that showed that impeaching Biden has gone from a fringe movement among Republican elected officials to increasingly mainstream. It's easy to see a scenario where between that and the uh, all these abortion restrictions that are being passed in Republican-led states, the Republicans uh, find a way to clutch defeat from the jaws of, uh, of victory. Uh, also, I know you, you have liked in the past, at least, some of the things that Senator Sanders has said on the trade issue. He apparently is leaving the door open to running in 2024 again. Do you see that happening? Uh, that's unimaginable to me simply because of his, of his age. He's even older, uh, unless I'm mistaken, he's even older than President Biden. Now, he, is, he does seem to be in much better physical shape. He does seem to be much mentally sharper. But he's going to be, um, as I recall, in his, in his early 80s. And unfortunately, that's about the time that most of us start to, to decline both physically and mentally. And the idea that, uh, that anybody in their early 80s could be counted on to serve a full four-year term as, as president effectively, just is not serious at all to me. You know, the, and I think Senator Sanders knows this. Yeah, I, If Donald Trump has said one of the few things that might keep him from running in 2024 is his health, you sort of seem to have your finger on the pulse of the at least Trumpian issue wing of the Republican Party, if not mm-hmm. Trumpian personality wing of the Republican Party. If Trump chooses not to run, given the field of candidates who've talked about running, which candidate do you think is the most Trumpian, at least on the issues? I've got to think that even though we don't know very much about his views on foreign policy and on trade, I've got to think that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida um, is the one um, who, who, who has the best qualifications for inheriting that, that Trumpian mantle. And um, there was a poll that came out just yesterday, a Harvard Caps Harris poll, showing that if the major party nominees are indeed President Biden and former President Trump, 58 percent of voters would be open to voting for a centrist independent. Uh, on April 24th, Andrew Yang was interviewed by Sarah Longwell. Yang said there will definitely be a mainstream centrist independent running in 24. And he suggested that perhaps Mark Cuban might be that candidate. How do you see a centrist independent candidate running against a Biden and a Trump? Well, we did see a a centrist independent political candidate make a pretty darn successful run for the presidency mm-hmm. back in 1992. His name, of course, was, was Ross Perot. Um, however, that uh, that presidential campaign, in retrospect, seems to be seems to have been awfully exceptional. Um, we really haven't seen potent 
third party movements in this country, um, I would say since since 1948, that's when the Southern Democrats split off from the National Party and formed the so-called Dixiecrat Party. We saw something like this happen with George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, in 1964. But 68. those candidacies never transcended that particular region and the and the advantages that incumbents enjoy in this political system the advantages that the two parties enjoy are so immense that i just can't see a third party candidacy taking off this alan i have to end it there uh, especially after last night's ball game uh, with the mets and the dramatic way in which it ended it looks like we're headed towards a met yankee world series i'll see you there i I hope amazing amazing and no as casey (laughs) would say it's amazing Uh, that's right that's right alan Tonelson. thank you very much my friend